0: I'm going to invite you in your bulletins. There's a sermon outlined this morning that has the Scripture on it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. In chapter 1 last week, we looked at verses 3 through 14 where we saw the blessings of God poured out on us. We saw how God the Father planned in eternity past, how the Lord Jesus provided, and how the Holy Spirit protects our incredible salvation. This morning, Paul does one more step And he prays that the church at Ephesus, directly to them, and then by application to you and I and every Christian throughout the church age, would get a glimpse, a grasp of what we have in Christ. One of the things that I think people do, uh, that they fail to do, is keep the Bible verses in context. And so, if you keep this prayer of Paul in context, it makes so much more sense as it ties to... He just talked about our incredible blessings that we were chosen in God before the foundations of the world holy and blameless that He predestined us before the foundation of the world to be adopted as children and sons and that's unbelievable. But we kind of just let it fall off us, roll off us. And so Paul prays that we would get a real spiritual perception. You know, I think about it's a funny story the first time uh, when I got started wearing glasses I didn't wear glasses until I was 25 or 26. Um... I was, before I went to seminary, I took a year of pre-seminary at a little Bible college in Lakeland, Florida. I didn't feel like I was ready just to jump into a seminary program. So I went and took a year of pre-seminary. And I was home visiting my parents one weekend. This was down in central Florida. I was driving with my mom one night. It just started raining. And I said, Mom, is that one lane or two? And she said, You can't see that that's two lanes? I said, No, I cannot. She goes, Well, you're getting your eyes checked. So as moms do, that next week I was at her ophthalmologist. He's going through the um, exam and he stops and he asks me, you know how they, you know when you go for your eye exam, you really have to work hard. What looks better, this or that? Well, sometimes nothing looks better to me, right? I really—they work you out too much. At least when you go to the dentist, you can be passive, but when you go to the eye doctor, they work you. So he's working me out, and he stops. He comes off. He goes, "Do you have a driver's license?" I go, "Yes." He goes, "You should not." He said, this prescription will be so strong, I'm afraid it will make you sick for someone that's never worn glasses. So he put this thing on my head, like, like, like a, 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 a fake pair of glasses. with the, He made me walk around his office for like a half hour. And it was a, like the wall looks... It was really... My eyes were that bad. So he gives me the prescription. He says, let's go for it. If it's too strong, we'll change it. So I had my... That was in the day when they gave you a piece of paper. Alright, and so I had, to, I took, the, I went to the optical place to get my glasses filled, and the guy says, you never wore glasses? And I said, no. And he goes to me, who's been chauffeuring you around? <laughs> I said, no one. He said, well, you shouldn't be driving. <laughs> so a week later, I get my glasses! I go in, I get them, and I walk out, anybody in Florida, Eckerd Drugs, you know Eckerd Drugs in Florida? They, they did optical, that's right. I walk out of Eckerd Drugs, And the first thing I say is, Wow, am I short! Because my depth perception was so off, I didn't realize I was this close to the ground. But the best part was when I drove at night for the first time. That next day, I drove back to Spurgeon Baptist Bible College that evening. And it was like I was in Disney World. The lights, the, the signs, the, 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 the directional. It was amazing to see 2020 for the first time in I don't know how many years. Now, when I couldn't see, I was functioning. But I wasn't functioning very well, right? Not very good, right? And it was dangerous. Apparently, I could have killed myself or killed somebody, Right? Well, it's the same with our spiritual lives. We may not be seeing God 2020 vision, but when we fail to see God in a 2020 vision, we miss His beauty, and we miss detail. And sometimes we put ourselves in danger because we're not perceiving what's, who God is and, and the dangers that are out there. And so I think Paul's prayer today. Is so powerful, so pertinent. It's a prayer that he prays for the church at Ephesus. It's a prayer that we should pray for ourselves regularly, as we look at chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty-three. Paul wants us to have a vision of God and a vision of who we are in Christ that is twenty-twenty, and he does that by praying two prayer requests for the church at Ephesus and by connection, by extension, for us. Two prayer requests that will sharpen our spiritual perception. That might impact us in every area of our Christian life. Do you want to see 2020? Do you want to? Let's go. Let's look and see what he says. In that first uh, uh, request, there is found in verses 15 through 17. Let me read those verses. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith, your faith the, heard, heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for You while making mention of You in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to You a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And that last phrase gives us qualifies what this prayer request is. Paul's first request is that we would have a growing spiritual perception of the person of God. If you're filling in your outline there, that first P is the person of God. Notice the quick introduction, verses 15 and 16. He says, for this reason, and that for this reason can focus back to the blessings, but I think it kind of moves forward because the next two phrases he gives the reason. I've heard about your faith and I've heard about your love, this great love that you have, church at Ephesus, for all the saints. And because of that, Verse 16, I do not cease. I don't stop. And that's the leading verb here in this whole passage. I don't stop. And then there's two phrases hanging off of that grammatically connected. I do not stop giving thanks. And I do not stop making mention of you in my prayers. He says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. And that just because I've heard about you doing so well as a church, I don't stop thanking God. You know, pastors, when they see their church doing well, they thank God. And he says, I don't stop praying. And that concept now of prayer controls the rest of these verses. And he moves to the first prayer request in verse 17. He said, I haven't stopped praying. And here's the first request, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, we need to unpack this because all of these words Every word in this phrase in this request are important. He says, "I pray first a spirit of wisdom." Now, some of you, the NIV or ESV even has spirit or large S. CSB has spirit large S. The literally Greek says, "I pray that you would have a spirit, not the spirit." And it doesn't say Holy Spirit. The New King James, King James, New American Standard has small s, which means that it. They understand the Bible writer not speaking about the Holy Spirit here. Now, let me just time out. No knowledge of God and no information of God comes apart from the Spirit. But we have to ask ourselves, is that what this text here is teaching? This text, I think, is teaching something else. We'll come to that, but the, but the interpretation of this text, he says, I pray that this wonderful God of the Lord Jesus, who is the Father of glory, would give you a spirit. So spirit here is not the Holy Spirit... It's another way that Paul uses the word when it's a spirit, if you, if you have your Bibles and you want to just look over to Ephesians 3:3, 3, 3, excuse me, um, four 23, 4:23. 4, and he says that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here He's using the word spirit like mental disposition, attitude. The Lord Jesus used it like that in Matthew chapter five verse three, when he said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." have a, a humble attitude. Their spirit would be kind of synonymous to, to attitude. And I think that's how Paul is using it here. He says, I pray that the God, the Father, or Lord Jesus Christ, would give you an attitude, a mental disposition, and we're going to see not just the grammar here, but I think the context demands it. Remember, it doesn't say the Spirit. It doesn't say Holy Spirit. So why do we read into the text? Don't do that. Okay, It says a spirit. And so a spirit is not some angelic spirit or demonic spirit. It simply says, it's being used in a generic way, spirit means mental disposition, attitude. He said, I pray that you have an attitude, a mental disposition of wisdom and revelation. Now, there's, those are two important words there. The word wisdom, it's a beautiful word. We get our little word, the name of a young child, a beautiful girl, Sophia. That's this word. And Sophia sometimes means knowledge. Many times it's used equal to knowledge, but most, especially in the in the Proverbs, wisdom is an application of knowledge. Wisdom is just not knowledge to know, but wisdom is implementing knowledge about God. Okay. And so he says, I pray that you have a spirit, a disposition, a mental attitude, a classified, a mindset that's classified with the wisdom. And the second phrase, a revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, we have to stop and understand what that means. The word revelation, guys in our doctrine class, revelation, Apocalypto, the uncovering from. If you had a statue and it was veiled and you took the veil off the statue, that's Apocalypto. The word revelation means that God unveils And I don't know if it's every time, but most of the time Paul uses this word. He's speaking about the mechanism of how God revealed to him, and then he put down on paper the inspiration of Scripture. Let me just give you... He's not talking about a general prompting of the Spirit. He's not talking about how the Spirit leads Christians. Here when he says, I want you to have the mindset of revelation this is the revelation of God, the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration or is inspired of God. Let me just show you a couple of ways. In fact, we don't even have to go very far. Ephesians 3.3. Look at Ephesians 3.3. Actually, we'll pick it up at verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me, that by revelation, there's our word, was made known to me, the mystery as was written before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight in this mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but now has been revealed, there's our word again, to his holy apostles and the prophets in or by the Spirit." See, Revelation, when Paul uses it, he's speaking about the, me- the mechanism by which God unveiled his truth to the Bible writers. And then, then by the Holy Spirit, they recorded that truth and giving us the scripture. Again, in 1 um, Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For to God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. And he talks about how uh, um, it didn't come by man. In Romans chapter sixteen he uses it again this way. He says in Romans sixteen twenty five, Now to him who's able to establish you um, excuse me, i us make sure I got the right verse there. Yeah, Romans sixteen twenty five. Now to him who's established you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ago, but now is manifest, made known by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal god has been made known to us leading us to obedience and faith again he says that this gospel that he preached was made known by revelation and then finally in galatians in galatians chapter 1 he says something very very similar using the word revelation 112 he says for i he talks about how he got Verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me was not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was it taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through the unveiling of Christ. So when he says, I pray that you would be filled with wisdom and revelation... He's speaking about that your I think that your that your mind would be filled with God's wisdom and God's knowledge. He just got done in giving us some of the most incredible revelation that God the Father in the past um uh chose you to be holy and blameless before him in love, that before the foundations of the world he predestined you to be adopted in Christ to be God's children. He, he just got done giving you some incredible revelation and he says, I want you to just have, uh, to, to, to be grasped this because then he moves to the final phrase that unlocks it. I pray that you'd have a mental disposition of, of, of wisdom and revelation all in the knowledge of Him. All in, in the Him here would be referenced to God. The word knowledge, ginosko, means a knowledge that's learning, that's developing, but it has a little preposition on it. Epigonosco, which means to really or deeply enter into the knowledge of God. The text stresses that we're filled with wisdom and information given from God about God. Did you get that? The text stresses that we would have a mind that understands information given from God about God. Now, that's for Paul's first prayer. And the, the next question would be, how does this first request impact our lives? Well, the great preacher from two generations ago, um, the great theologian, the great spiritual man, A.W. Tozer, what a man of God, what a writer for God. He wrote Heart Theology. He said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God? If we think about this, if we think about God being Creator, we know where we came from. If we think about God being holy, we know we now know how to live. We have a standard. We have a, you know we can teach children morality, but when we cut God out of the picture, what's the motivation for that morality? Well, you, it's better for people. It's better for you. But really, the primary motivation for holy living is God is holy. God is true. God is. If we understand that God is powerful, we have an ability to cope. We're going to learn more about God's power in just a minute. If we understand that God is loving, and boy, that's what gripped me last week from this passage, the passage that we had here, where he talked about God choosing us to stand before in Christ. We stand before Christ, holy and blameless, before Him in love. And He predetermined before the foundation of the world that we would be adopted as His children according to the kind intention of His will, according to the grace which He just lavished on us in wisdom and insight. I was so gripped with His love. And when we understand His love, we can rest. Until you understand His love, you don't rest. And then when we understand that God is eternal, we face death with great bravery. People that live well in God die well. They die well. We had a dear saint in our church in Indianapolis. She was a dear lady in her 80s. First person I lost as a pastor. She said one Sunday, she said, oh, Pastor, <clears throat> I'm not going to stay for care group. We had a similar setup here. We had church. Then we had, she said, I had a little tickle in my throat. Three weeks later, she was dead. Full. Never smoked. Full of lung cancer. And we had a, our, we had a doctor in our church. And him and I went to tell her, we said, oh, um, Virginia, Virginia, you know, you have, your lungs are full. Even the fluid in your lungs is full of cancer. And she looked and she said, Can you keep me comfortable till I get home? When you walk with God well, you die well. And she was beautiful. When we understand when we have a glimpse of God, see, we have a lot of stress in life. I don't know about you, but this is me being calm. I tell that to Lori all the time. I said, I am calm. (laughs) Type A is a blessing and a curse. Right? Although my blood pressure this week was 122 over 66. The doctor says, amazing. I said, that is amazing. All right. Back on track. There's a lot of stress. And and I like what one brother said, when we make everything big, God is small. But when we make God big, everything is small. you see the opposite? When we make everything big, we make God little. But when we make God who God is, everything else, that's no big deal for God. He's the creator of the universe. He's eternal. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful, all-loving. You know what we'd say in New Jersey about that problem? Forget about it. Just forget about it. It's no big deal. We don't want to minimize our problems, but yet we want to go through life appropriating the resource of a great and personal God. Now, he never tells us in this passage, he has a prayer for the church that we are to be filled to have an attitude of wisdom and revelation about the living God. But he doesn't tell us how to get it. And I think it's good to, I think he shows us by example, we should pray we're going to challenge you to pray this prayer daily for the next week. But, you know, where else do we get a knowledge of the living God? Through this incredible book. Where is the revelation of God? It's here in the Scriptures. And, you know, to, to, to study on your own, to read on your own, to to take the sermon notes and run them through your mind, um, to, to be in care group, to... Um, to, to, to do Bible memory and memorization. Uh, it's really great. That's how we renew our minds. By the renewing of our mind, we're transformed. And so, he doesn't... And then there's the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, we will not understand God's Scripture. So, there is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in this next passage, in the next request. So then the prayer is this, Lord, I want a powerful and purposeful life. So my So fill my mind with wisdom and revelation about your person. If you do that, you're on the trip. You're on the road to success. Powerful life. That brings us to the second prayer request. And that second prayer request is found in verses 18 through 23. And I'm going to introduce it by just reading verses 18 and 19. Notice he says again the New American Standard, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We sang that, open my eyes that I may see. We sang that in that hymn. Here's his prayer request. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, what does that mean? Well, heart in the scripture, we understand the Bible to teach that mankind, humankind, is made up of three parts body, this part of us that relates to the, our environment, our soul, our suke. Our suke, we get our word psychology, and in our soul, we have our intellect, our will, and our emotions. And then our spirit. We're going to learn next week that we were dead in our spirit. We're going to learn that when we accepted Christ, our spirit got regenerated. Um, we now are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who regenerates our human spirit. So we're body, soul, and spirit. So what's this thing, the heart? Heart is used in Scripture um, to speak of the deepest part of a person. And for a Christian, I like to define heart, and I should have done a PowerPoint for this, but you could get the gist, if this is your soul, where you think, where you feel and where you act, and this is your regenerated, scripture, your regenerated spirit, where those two intersect, when, when your mind, your natural mind that was alienated and separated from God, is enlightened by God's word through His spirit. And it prompts you and moves you and excites you, that's heart. We kind of use it hard. We say, honey, I love you with all my heart. Or, you know, um, uh, he put his whole heart into it. It speaks about someone that, that, in, that throws himself or herself into something, deeply committed. And I think that when we have a mind that's illuminated by God's spirit and where that overlaps and transforms our thinking, that's our hearts. Now, I don't know if I can prove that theologically, but it's a way that has helped me process. I don't think it's wrong, although I'm going to teach it to you. I think it's a good way to understand it. The heart is the interface of our mind, will, and emotions with the enlightened spirit. And I think that's exactly what this passage is speaking about here, when he says that the eyes of our heart, that we would perceive, that we'd have spiritual perception may be enlightened, may be brought into the light, may have a... We talk about in theology that the Spirit of God illuminates us. That's, this, this would be probably be the best verse to teach that the Spirit of God... Have you ever experienced the illumination of God's Spirit? You know, I, I read through the New Testament twice before I was a Christian. And I said, I don't know, I, I don't get it. I just see you've got to do a lot of good works to get to heaven. I didn't get it. But when I accepted Christ as my Savior, I opened up the New Testament and all of a sudden, I could understand it. It made sense to me. Because now I had the indwelling Spirit illuminating His Word to me. That Spirit was, was, was cross-sectioning into my mind, will, and emotions where I could understand God's truth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. So when you're a spiritual man, you receive and understand the things of the Spirit. And so, he says, I pray that God this this heart of yours, this spiritual part of you, that this intersection of mind and spirit would be illuminated. Now look what he prays. There's three powerful possessions. And In fact, I didn't give you that key word, did I? Paul's second request is that we have a growing spiritual perception of our possessions in Christ, what we have in Christ. If you got that second P, I'm sorry. Flip that over. So the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, so that we will come to know. Now, this is what he wants. Three grand truths that Paul wants us to know all show us what we what we possess. He says, "I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would have, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, that you would really know, that you would really gnosco this hope. And hope here is not uncertainty. You know, we use hope as well. I hope she remembers to pick me up." We, we kind of use hope as an uncertainty, but Scripture uses hope as a, as a certainty that we haven't um, appropriate, that we haven't achieved yet. Like we look to Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. That's not our blessed uncertainty, it's a future certainty that we haven't received yet. Hope is also used as a positive disposition in Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, he says, "Always be ready to give an answer of the hope that's in you, that you're going through life because you're in Christ with a positive disposition. You're you're, you're optimistic. Would that be a good? Could you, could, would you accept that? That he says here that you would have an optimism of his calling, that you would be have a, a positive attitude." of His calling. Now, what has He called us to? What do, what, what do we have as Christians? Well, we got to go right back to the context. Chapters 1, verses 3 and 4, that He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, that we're predestined to be uh, His children, uh, adopted in Christ. Verses 7 through 12, that we've been fully redeemed, clear conscience, fully forgiven. Verse 11, that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, that we have eternal life and everything that's Christ is ours. Verses 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit seals us and indwells us as a pledge that God is going to complete our redemption. He says, we need to be gripped with the reality of that hope. See, the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the great men and women of God never get over their salvation. And carnal people, they treat their salvation as casual. See? Don't ever treat it casual. For some, it might take more to keep renewing your mind and, 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 and reassuring yourself of this incredible hope that we have, that we face death without fear, that we have an eternal future, that we have a, a, the living God as our partner and friend, guiding and directing. But That's something to have hope in. You say, well, my life is not doing great right now. Well, we all struggle. And what I find out when I struggle, I'm mean, going to just tell you, I'm not taking advantage of the resources that are mine in Christ. And I'll come home sometime, I'll be discouraged. You know what Laurie says to me? Are you telling yourself the truth? In other words, she's asking me, are you renewing your mind? Are you processing this from who you are in Christ? I want to tell her to be quiet, right? You know? She said, you preach this stuff, how do you like it? I've got a process just like you, and everything. We have heartbreak, we have financial questions, we have health scares, just, you know, just because I'm preaching to the meat, I don't have, I have all that. Plus, we try and hope to enter into every one of yours. See? So, um, I have to apply this too. Secondly, oh, this one is so incredible. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you wouldn't have this optimism of your calling of who you are in Christ. All that I just talked about in verses 3 through 14. And now he gives something else. That you would understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we talked about inheritance last week. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says you were adopted. We talked about adoption was important. Because in the, in the New Testament time, in order for me to have an heir, if I didn't have an heir, I would have to adopt an heir so I could pass on. Okay? If it was my child, I would set my child as an adult. That was called the adoption service so that my child could now be an heir. Prior to that, Galatians 4 says, even though he's the heir, he has no rights and privileges, no responsibilities. He's just like a slave. So, adoption in the New Testament is a placing us an adult child with the rights and privileges so that inheritance can be received and passed. Okay, in chapter eleven, excuse me, in verse eleven, we learned in Christ we've obtained an inheritance, and we saw how that inheritance was our eternal life from First Peter chapter one, an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, un- reserved for you in heaven that does not fade away. We saw that, but in this verse, the grammar is different. Notice it says that you would not know the riches and glory of His inheritance. This is what God inherits. And He gives us in this next phrase what God's inheritance is. Watch it with me. In the saints. Do you understand that not only did you inherit eternal life, but God looks at you as His child, as one redeemed, as one loved before the foundations of the world, and he says, "You are my inheritance." Now, he used that phrase of Israel in uh, Deuteronomy 32:9. Um, it says, "For the Lord's portion is His people, Israel, um, and Israel is the allotment of His inheritance." Deuteronomy 32:9. And so here, Christians are God's inheritance. Usually, inheritance is something great and valuable. Something that enriches your life. So, he says, you're my inheritance. We, 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 we're not, we just don't inherit. We're not just heirs. But we are the object of God's inheritance. That says that we have value to God. We're going to apply this in just a moment. But thirdly, let's look at this next one, which is so incredible. The third thing that he wants us to know, the third grand truth that he wants us to know, he says, I I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know what the hope of your calling is, that you'd have this optimism because of all you have in Christ, that you would have a sense of value because you are his inheritance. And then finally, verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He says that you would have a a, a spiritual illumination about God's power, his power that is working towards, working in everyone who believes. Now, what's incredible is verses 20 through 23. We'll take it a phrase at a time. Because he talks about four illustrations of God's power that's working in you. Because if I say to you, God's power is working in you, it's kind of nebulous. It's kind of undefined. Well, he defines it. Watch it with me. Verse um, 20. Here's the power which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. The first resurrection power. He says, you want to know God's power that's working towards you? He was raised. We sang that song. When death was arrested and my life began, His power, when Jesus died, that resurrection power, when we accept the Christ, that resurrection power becomes our resurrection power. Romans chapter 6 says, because He's resurrected, we will resurrect. How do you conquer the grave? You don't conquer the grave because you've been powerful or because you've been good. You live again and your body is going to be resurrected because Jesus Christ. He's called in 1 Corinthians the first fruit. And What does that mean? The first fruit was the first part of the harvest. That implies the rest of the harvest is yet to come. And you know what the rest of the harvest is? Resurrected bodies, that's us. That is unbelievable! You see why you need spiritual enlightenment to grasp it? Secondly, look at the next phrase. And he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. That speaks about his glorification. After Jesus was resurrected, Acts chapter 1 says he lived in his resurrected body 40 days. Then he ascended. Romans chapter 8 says he's ascended and now is seated at the right hand of God making intercession. He's in his glorified state. He says that power is working towards us. The first way, we will be glorified with him. We, it says when we see him, we will be made like him. That same power that glorified Jesus is going to glorify you. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says this body of mortality will put on immortality. This body of decay will put on non-decay. This body that was a, an earth suit will put on a heaven suit. If you went and lived under the ocean, you'd have to put a scuba suit on. If you went and lived on Mars, you'd have to put a space suit on. If you're going to live in heaven, you've got to put a heaven suit on. Right now we have an earth suit on. Okay? That same power is yours. Wow. The next is really incredible. Look at verse 21. Now that he's glorified, he's venerated. There's resurrection power, there's glorification power, there's veneration power. He's above all things. Far and above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You know what that says? He's above all the demonic forces. That's what that's, that's what that's in reference to. Authority, power, and dominion are usually phrases that speak of demonic forces. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He is over all demonic forces. That same power is working in and through you. Yes, greater is He that is in me than is He that is in the world. Yes, we do recognize our lesson this week with the elders trainers, training was on the spirit beings. We have to acknowledge the spirit world. We don't fear it. Because He sits enthroned above it. And then finally... His installation power, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church here is used not of this local assembly. The word church is used two ways in the scripture. It's used of the local church, like he said, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Galatia. If we were writing today to the church at New Tripoli, to the church in Slatington, the church in Allentown. They're just local assemblies of people in locales. But when he, the Bible also talks about the church being the body of believers from the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, joining all believers to Christ and one another, and I believe to the day of the rapture when the church is removed. That is the church in perspective. That is the church awaiting You know who the first member of that spiritual church was? Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred. The first Christian martyr. He died physically and his soul spirit sat in the pew and said, I'm waiting for the rest to get here for the service to start. Every day, God is adding to that assembly. And in eternity that body of Christ. You were indwelled by the Spirit and placed in union with Christ. And every believer from 2,000 years ago, and if Jesus doesn't come back, from 2,000 years later, if He comes back next week, but if He could come back another 2,000 years, that is the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head of that body. And we answer, we worship, we honor Him. And that's the power that's at work in us. So, <coughs> Paul, here... He says, I pray that you would have spiritual perception about your hope, that you'd be optimistic about all that you have in Christ. You know, Bob George in my favorite, one of my favorite books, Class of Christianity says, Christians don't have a wrong view of salvation. They have too small a view of salvation. He's so right. That we would see our value. See, when we understand that our, if we have a wrong view of salvation, we think we're still paying for our sins. And God just tolerates us. Oh me, little little wicked sinner that I am. He calls you a a saint 63 times. He calls you his inheritance. It's not that you're perfect. It's that Jesus Christ is perfect. Don't deny him. Don't superimpose your sin over his work. Superimpose his work over your sin. We don't make light of sin. That's Romans 6. But the same token, don't make it greater than his work. Because as long as your conscience is not clear, as long as you see yourself as the poor little sinner instead of a saint, you don't live a victorious life. Satan just says, I got her. She's defeated. She's fighting a battle that's already been won. I don't have to keep worry about her or worry about him. So we understand our great value that in Christ we're a valued inheritance. And then finally we have power. Power over death power over sin, power over demons, power over all the forces of this wicked world because we're in Christ and Christ is enthroned above it. Now that's something that we need a spiritual enlightenment to grasp. You know, the great late publisher, William Randolph Hearst, was a very wealthy man back in the 70s there and 80s. He had a fortune in in art that he collected. And one day, he read about several pieces and he told his agent, he says, I must get those pieces. So he sent his agent to to Europe, searching all over Europe for those two pieces. And after months, the agent came back and said, I have good news. I found the pieces. I have bad news. You've owned them all this time. They've been in your warehouse. He had these riches, William Hurst, and didn't know he had them. And I just think that's tragic because so many Christians live not knowing their riches in Christ. Let's not set our theology by humanistic view of God and man, but as Bob George says, let's let grace be grace. Let's let the transforming power of grace be grace. And we need to ask God to open our minds, our hearts to see that because we don't have anything in our life humanly speaking, that compares to this grace. Nothing. And so we need an illuminating work of God's Spirit that we get gripped by it. For me, it was after graduating from seminary with Theology Award in 1992 reading Class of Christianity and I said, how did I graduate with honors from a great school and not be gripped with the reality that Christ is in me, the hope of glory? How did I graduate not understanding. Not ju- I understood it academically. I could give you all the verses and defend it, but not being gripped with the reality that His righteousness, that I was as righteous as Christ because I was in Christ and Christ was in me. It almost, uh, almost sounds sacrilegious to say, right? But it's true. And that opened my eyes and changed my whole life in ministry. God gave me an illuminating work that day at Cool Creek Apartments, in our little apartment there where we were staying in the passage this morning, Paul makes two requests. If you've got your notes there, fill in there at the very end, message summary. Request for our perception of the person of God and request for our perception of our possessions in Christ. You know, the great missionary Hudson Taylor, you've read about him, you know about him, China Inland Mission, went to China, ministered for years and years and years. Well, in his autobiography, he talks about how he was miserable. How he labored and was so discouraged. How he was so embittered. How he was so sharp of tongue with people, with his coworkers, with his with his family, and and how miserable he was. But then, through crying out to God, God revealed to him a simple truth: Christ received His holiness begun, and Christ cherished His holiness advancing. He talks about it in his biography how he stopped trying to imitate Christ and just started allowing Christ to live through him. Do you know the title of that biography? It's called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Now, in the late 1800s, when Hudson Taylor was living, he had the same Bible, basically, that you and I. He had the King James Version. It wasn't something veiled, but it was something that, although he knew theologically, he didn't know experientially of who he was in Christ. And when he changed and understood experientially, he actually coined the term, you'll hear me use the term, exchange life. He coined that term, that he exchanged his life for Christ's life through him. It happened as a work, of spiritual illumination. And that's what we've been talking about this morning. I don't want you to labor, to be empty, to be defeated, to be discouraged. I believe it takes a supernatural illumination of God's spirit in his word as we work through Ephesians. And there in your in your notes there, there's a little prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray in just a moment silently before I pray. And then I'm going to ask you to pray it weekly, or excuse me, daily this week. That little prayer says, Lord, give me a spirit, give me a mental disposition of wisdom and information, revelation of the knowledge of you. And show me a fresh and anew, it should be anew. Your infinite person, your perfect holiness your eternal love. Also, open the eyes of my heart that I can more fully understand what my hope is in Jesus, how valued I am as your inheritance and what your prayer is that is working in me. I'm going to ask Cody to come to the piano and Chad, if you'd come while, I'm, while we pray and as I pray that you'll just go into that last song right from our prayer time. I want you to ask, I'm going to ask you to pray silently that little prayer. I'm going to ask you to say, Lord, please show me a fresh and anew yourself. And then I'll pray for us and then the guys will lead us in a a song of worship that brings us in to to His presence. Take that little prayer and pray it through. Father, Your Word is awesome. Your Spirit is precious. Our life in Christ is majestic. This is the foundation of Christian living. And so, Lord, this prayer for spiritual perception that Paul shared with the church at Ephesus and that he's sharing with us this morning, I ask that we would take this to our hearts and that we would not let go until you give us a breakthrough, Lord, each one here, that each of us would would have a growing sense of your wisdom and a a true revelation of You, that You would show us afresh and anew Your infinite person, Your perfect holiness, and Your eternal love, that You would open the eyes of our heart, that we will more fully understand what our hope is in Jesus, how valued we are as Christ's inheritance, and Your power that is at work in each believer. Father, by Your Spirit, Take your word and illuminate our minds. Bring us into your presence now in Jesus' name. Amen.